In last week's sermon, I mentioned that we would be looking at Paul's note to Philemon this week. If that caught your attention, you may have assumed it was the prelude to an April Fool's Day joke, since uh, even though today is Easter Sunday, it's also April 1st. But let me assure you, I wasn't joking. Since I knew I was going to finish Colossians on Palm Sunday and planned to go into 1 Timothy for our next study, I had to decide what to do for Easter. You'd think I would have simply taken advantage of a natural break and planned to preach a traditional Easter sermon. But you know how I am. <laughs> now, even though we would be finished with Paul's letter to the Colossians, when it was delivered, included with it was a personal note to Philemon. And since Paul packaged them together, I thought I should do so as well, if I could make Philemon into an Easter sermon. When I told Mark of my plan to attempt something for Easter that made me a little nervous, he jumped at the chance to preach a resurrection sermon while I was on my way to Disney World a month before Easter. So now I'm stuck, and we'll see if I can make it happen or not. When reading through Philemon, looking for anything that could be used to make it into an Easter sermon, I came upon a statement that seemed to open the door for me. In verse 15, Paul writes, For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a that you should have him back forever. Now, obviously, Paul wasn't thinking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus when he wrote that. But I wondered if I might not be able to draw some parallels between Philemon's separation from Onesimus and our separation from Christ for three days. And even now, we'll begin by simply looking at Paul's note. And then see if we can't find an Easter message in it. Philemon 1 through 25. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to uh, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you, for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. 
since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful, useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it lest I should mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, Paul has been criticized for not condemning slavery when writing to a slave owner. But what he had to say to him surely did more to undermine slavery than anything else he could have written. And it's obvious, even from the greeting, that Paul has an important objective in mind when writing to Philemon. He addresses it to Philemon, Apphia, and Archippus. Archippus we met last week when Paul instructed the Colossians to encourage him to fulfill the ministry he had been given. And we noted that it was quite possible that he had been asked to fill in for Epaphras, the preacher, when he had gone to Rome to consult with Paul. The way Philemon, Apphia, and Archippus are linked together in the greeting leads to the conclusion that they are probably husband and wife and son, and it appears that a church in Colossae met in their home. In addition to the usual grace and peace greeting found in Paul's letters, we find an unusual amount of praise being directed to the recipient of this letter. Paul said he prays for Philemon because he keeps hearing of his faith and the love he shows to Jesus and all the saints. And he prays that his relationships in the church will deepen as he learns of even more that Christ wants to do through him. 
when he expresses the joy and comfort that comes to him personally because of the love that, that he shows to the saints and the way he refreshes them, we get the feeling that Paul knew this brother pretty well. It's even possible that Paul had led him to the Lord while he was on a business trip in Ephesus. With the greeting out of the way and the recipient no doubt made receptive to the coming message, it was time to get to the point. Almost. Before getting there, Paul did want to express his confidence that Philemon would do the right thing. And because he knew of the love they had for each other and for the Lord, he knew he wouldn't have to order him to do it. He could just appeal to him. Not as Paul the Apostle, but Paul the Aged. And as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Philemon surely knew he'd have to say yes to whatever Paul wanted. And what Paul was going to ask was huge. The law was very clear that a runaway slave could be executed by his master if he was caught and returned. And Onesimus was Philemon's slave. To Paul, however, Onesimus was more than that. He was his spiritual child, begotten while in prison with him. And while Onesimus, whose name means useful, had become useless to Philemon as a runaway, he had indeed become useful to Paul in prison. How he got there, we can only surmise. It's possible that he had been captured and imprisoned as a runaway. Or it's possible that he had intentionally gone to Rome looking for Paul, having heard about him from Philemon. Either way, Onesimus had apparently become a Christian while in prison with Paul. And Paul is now sending him back to his owner, reluctantly. Onesimus had not only become useful to him, sending him back was like sending Philemon his heart ripped from his chest. Paul didn't have to do it. He could have kept Onesimus with him, but he didn't want to do so without Philemon's approval. He wanted Philemon to willingly allow Onesimus to minister to him out of the goodness of his heart. And while recognizing that Onesimus was indeed Philemon's slave, Paul made it very clear he was also now his brother in the Lord. And Paul wanted Philemon to love him as he did, as a person and as a beloved brother in Christ. After expressing how he felt about Onesimus, Paul was certain Philemon would want to treat Onesimus the same way he would treat Paul himself. And then Paul did something that many find laughable. He said if Onesimus owed him anything, which he certainly did, owing his master for lost services, if not for things he may have actually stolen when he ran away, that Philemon could just charge it to Paul's account. Now, since Paul was a prisoner when writing this, Many insist both he and Philemon knew there was no way he could cover Onesimus' debt. 
and that he just said it so he could point out the fact that Philemon was spiritually indebted to him. But Paul apparently did have access to financial resources. In the book of Acts, we learn that when he was in Rome for two years as a prisoner, he stayed in his own rented quarters. And when he was a prisoner in Caesarea, Felix had kept him there in the hopes of getting money from him. So Paul was serious. In fact, he had written with his own hand what could be seen as a promissory note. He was convinced, however, that Philemon wouldn't do anything to distress him, and that he would do even more than he had asked. He even encouraged Philemon to pray that he would be able to come for a visit and asked him to get a room ready for him. He ended by sending greetings from Epaphras, the preacher from Colossae, who had apparently ended up in prison after coming to Rome to visit Paul, and from several other fellow workers we learned about last week. That's the story of Philemon and Onesimus, and how they were parted for a while so they could be brought back together for all eternity. And that is where I trust we can find a message for this Easter Sunday morning. How Jesus was parted from us for a while so we could be with him forever. Even in the early days of his ministry, Jesus made it clear that the day was coming when he would be taken away from his disciples. When the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees noted that Jesus' disciples were not fasting, they asked him why. He responded by saying, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, there's some debate about what Jesus is referencing here. Those who believe we should be fasting today suggest he was talking about the entire period between his ascension into heaven and his second coming. Those of us who don't practice fasting as a spiritual discipline believe he was talking about the three days he spent in the tomb. And shortly before his ascension, after giving us the Great Commission, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So it doesn't sound to me like he's gone. At least, not spiritually. In fact, he said it would be to our advantage for him to leave us physically so the Helper, the Holy Spirit, could come and be with us. Jesus didn't abandon us and leave us as orphans when he ascended. His Spirit dwells within us and we can sense His presence in our life. I don't see a need to fast, as if we've been separated from the bridegroom. We celebrate His presence every Lord's Day when we meet with Him around His table. 
Now, it is true that Jesus is pictured as the bridegroom coming to claim his bride at the second coming in the parable of the ten virgins. And we do learn there of the need to always be ready for his return. But I don't believe the parable is teaching us that he's not here now and that we should be fasting in his absence. The virgins were waiting for the bridegroom with great anticipation, excited that he was on the way. They were getting ready to celebrate. They certainly weren't fasting. However, there was a time when he was really gone. And the disciples had lost hope that they would see him again. He was dead. They had watched the Romans crucify him and then make certain he was dead. It was a time of great sorrow and no doubt fasting. He had been taken from them. And like Onesimus, was in a prison of sorts. In 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, we read, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. It's true this passage raises more questions than it answers. But we are at least told something of Jesus' activity during the three days he was parted from his disciples. What he proclaimed, we're not told. But we are told the proclamation was made to disobedient spirits, particularly those who were involved in the events that led to the flood. It's my belief that he proclaimed to them that what they thought they had accomplished by leading men to sin had been victoriously overcome. And the debt owed to God, like the one owed to Philemon, had been more than paid for. As a result, our relationship with the Heavenly Father and with each other had been eternally altered. We, who had been useless because of sin, became useful to God. We were cleansed so we could come into His presence and equipped so we could do things of eternal value, no longer alienated from one another and running away from our responsibilities. We became brothers, partners in Christ's work on earth. Jesus left us for a while, physically and spiritually, so he could bring us together forever. And then he left us physically, ascending into heaven to prepare for us an eternal lodging place. In John 14, he made this promise to us. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. 
that where I am, there you may be also. Upon that promise, we rest our hope. A hope made possible through the resurrection of Christ. For as Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Our hope for eternal life was made possible because Jesus was parted from us for a while, for three days in the tomb. And when he arose, he became the firstborn of the dead, assuring us that we too could rise again. If we are willing to die, allowing our old self to be crucified with him and express that willingness by being buried in Christian baptism, we too will be raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Raised to newness of life while here on earth and to eternal life in heaven when he returns for us. He may not be with us now in the flesh, but someday we will see him face to face. And when we do, he'll not be coming to condemn us for our disobedience, for running away from him but to receive us back as members of his family. Our relationship with him will have been changed for all eternity if we have done what he asked us to do. Not under compulsion, but as Paul longed for Philemon to do, of our own free will. The appeal has been made and the price has been paid.